Hey everybody, Mike Dempsey here. It's NFL playoff time, and you can still win playing Underdog Fantasy by picking higher or lower on player stats at underdogfantasy.com. Sign up with promo code 1010XL, and Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100. He's Hacker. So much so that I had to ask around. I'm like, hey, I'm kind of a nice guy, right? Hacker is an ass. I try as I'm getting into my old age at 39 years old. Try not to let things bother me. Just know that I'm ultra soft. And he doesn't shy away from opinion. See Baker Mayfield throw four passes. But, uh, but I get to see this homeless guy return a ball for oh, a touchdown. It's Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. And a very good Tuesday night to you, Jacksonville. It is Hacker After Dark, 1010XL, 92.5 FM with Dylan Denmark. The Hacker, Ryan Green with you. Glad you are with us. I will tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, there are certain days that you will remember here on Hacker After Dark and, quite frankly, in the world of athletics, right? You remember when Willis Reed took the court in Madison Square Garden on a hobbled knee and led the Knicks to victory. You remember when Jack Youngblood prayed in a broken leg there in the National Football League, former Gator great. You remember when Byron Leftwich's offensive line at Marshall carried him down the field because he did not want to come out. I don't know if I'm in that category, Denmark, but I will tell you this. If you are a parent of a toddler in VPK or younger, you can appreciate this. And Denmark, this will probably happen to you at some point. When your toddler, in this case, Little Hack, when he gets something at VPK, it's a done deal. Done deal. There is no hiding from it. Uh, three hours ago, I wasn't sure I was going to join you guys tonight, but I looked myself in the mirror, splashed some water on my face, and I said, Hacker, you're not going to let whatever this is interfere with you talking to the good folks in Jacksonville, Florida, particularly on our late night show at 10.02 Eastern Standard Time. Who needs medicine and a comfy, warm bed right now when I could come hang out with Dylan Denmark and you guys for the next two hours? And when your boss man's probably gone to bed, we're not in the business of calling and waking him up and saying, by the way, Steve, I'm not coming in. So I'm here with you, and I'm excited about it here on Hacker After Dark, and it is going to be some show for you, let me assure you of that. We got a terrific guest lineup tonight, my buddy Brent Beard. You see him on First Coast News. You get him weekly here. On Hacker After Dark, we'll get Brent up in less than 15 minutes to talk about the world of college football. Have you seen the mass exodus from Tuscaloosa, Alabama? They are losing a ton of people. Their loss has been a benefit to both Florida and Florida State. So we will talk with Brent Beard about that. We'll certainly throw in some Gator notes. And I want to ask Brent, and this is just a random thought, you know, 10 years ago, SEC basketball was pretty good at the top, but obviously was not very good the middle of the bottom of the conference. And the conference decided, the schools decided to put a lot of money into basketball. And if you look now, the SEC is one of the better basketball conferences out there. You would have laughed about that a few years ago. You're not laughing about it now. And then you got a, a football conference like the ACC that can never seem to get out of its own way. Why has SEC basketball been able to thrive, yet ACC football has stayed in the doldrums? So we'll kind of get into that a little bit, get you thinking about that. Also, Championship Sunday, we will go to all four cities over the next four nights and talk with correspondents in Baltimore, in Kansas City, in Detroit. But tonight, we will begin in San Francisco. 
My buddy Jose Sanchez, all49ers.com, will join us to preview the Lions and the 49ers. If you live in San Francisco, if you are a relative of anybody that works or plays for the 49ers, or if you get your paycheck directly from that organization, odds are you'll be rooting for them on Sunday. I don't know how many other people will be. The Detroit Lions are America's darling, it seems like. I know I'm certainly pulling for Dan Campbell and Detroit. So we will get into that with Jose Sanchez, all49ers.com. In the 11 o'clock hour, Jacob Rudner, 24-7 sports. Again, Florida football, Florida basketball. A lot seemingly going on with both here in late January, particularly on the football side of things. And then we have a brand new head football coach in Duval County. A brand new man at the helm of Sandalwood High School. And the interesting thing about the hire at Sandalwood High School, Coach Kessel was the former defensive coordinator at Nice, had also spent time at Bishop Kenny in Ponte Vedra, long time assistant. He now gets an opportunity at Sandalwood. So we'll have the brand new coach of the Saints, Coach Kessel, on coming up later on here on Hacker After Dark. But as we do every night, to kick it off here on HAD, we give you a big deal of the night and Dylan Denmark. Let's do that right now. Time now for the big deal of the night. What's the big deal? What is the big deal? No, it is a big deal. On Hacker After Dark. This was not the big deal of the night, but Denmark, you just sent me this. We got a little this just in here on Hacker After Dark. What's going this on in the NBA? just in on Hacker After Dark. Uh, we got uh, Doc Rivers officially is the coach for the Milwaukee Bucks. How about that? Milwaukee fires their head coach, Griffin, earlier today. He's fired for about 12 hours. Makes you think they already had a deal with Doc Rivers, right? Can you negotiate something in 12 hours? I would tend to doubt it. But Doc Rivers back in. Boy, he doesn't want to get out of it, does he? From Orlando to Boston, Boston to the Clippers. Clippers to the 76ers, and now back to the Bucks. You want to talk about a guy that gets cushy jobs, too. Good grief. Boston, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, and now gets to coach Dame Willard and the Greek freak there in Milwaukee. I guess good for Doc Rivers. We'll see if they can catch the Celtics. The Celtics appear to be the best team in the Eastern Conference. Uh, quickly to the big deal of the night. I'm surprised that people are surprised there's all these rumors about the Jacksonville Jaguars. What's going on behind the scenes? Or is there disagreement? Is there a rift? You were eight and three. You were the number one seed for a few hours during week 12 of the NFL season. And in the subsequent six weeks after that, you not only lost the division, you didn't even make the playoffs. It is a collapse that we will be talking about here in Jacksonville for a long time and maybe ever. Ten years from now, you say the words, uh, the collapse. Oh, yeah, yeah, 2023. That will live forever. You can't go 8-3 and three and miss the playoffs. You can't be the number one seed for a few hours during week 12 of the season and miss the playoffs. So I guess I'm surprised that people are surprised that there could be a potential rift with Doug Peterson, with Trent Baalke, who's calling the shots down there. 
Doug Peterson's right-hand man is Press Taylor. Is Trent Baalke on board with that? There's all sorts of rumblings. Shad Khan is actually very on board with Trent Baalke. He's proven that. That would be an interesting poll. More loyalty. Doug Peterson to Press Taylor or Shad Khan to Trent Baalke. And I haven't criticized Trent Baalke in a long time. I think some of the criticism he gets is somewhat unwarranted, maybe over the top. But I will criticize him here just for a second. Brandon Bean today in Buffalo, the Bills general manager, after they got their heart ripped out on Sunday night, less than 48 hours after that game, held court for 63 minutes today answering questions from the Bills media. 63 minutes. Have we heard a peep from Trent Baalke in the last 16 days? Nope. And when I commented on that, some of my media brethren in Indianapolis say, oh, yeah, that's the way we do it up here. GM always talks after the year. I had guys in San Francisco that cover the 49ers. Yep, that sounds like Balky. He hated the media here too. That's a fair criticism. Trent Balky, if you're going to be the GM, where are you, man? Why aren't you talking? There's a lot of questions that need to be answered about what happened. Doug Peterson had to answer them. Twice, as a matter of fact. Where are you? It's not a good look, man. Not a good look. What is a good look is our guest lineup tonight. Again, Brenton Beard talking college ball. Coming up in less than 10 minutes. Then we will go out to San Francisco. My buddy Jose Sanchez, all49ers.com. Previewing the Lions and the 49ers. Jacob Rudner down in Gainesville, 24-7 Sports. Gator basketball and Gator football, both in the news. And then later on in the 11 o'clock hour, we'll bring you the brand new head coach of Sandalwood High School, Coach Kessel. Big school he's taking over, big job, as we give you a little high school spotlight here in the month of January. It is a Tuesday night on Hacker After Dark with Dylan Denmark, the Hacker Ryan Green with you. Jacksonville, we're glad you're with us. It's 1010XL, and it's 92.5 FM. Let's ring up another guest on the All-Pro Roofing phone line. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. It is a Tuesday evening. That means there is a lot to get into in the world of college football. We got a mass exodus in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Is there genuine concern out there? The Gators have a couple of maybe unexpected arrivals for the spring uh, season. And I got a thought about SEC basketball in comparison to ACC football. Let me welcome in my friend Brent Beard. You get him weekly on First Coast News. You also get him right here on Hacker After Dark. Mr. Beard, how are you, my friend? Well, I'm doing okay. It is uh, still amazing trying to keep up with all that's going on. Uh, Hank, I remember I do a notes column every day, uh, and I send it basically to uh, friends who do sports media, and I remember years ago uh, hunting and pecking for just to put something in there, uh, and now it's just hard to keep up with it. Frankly, yeah, it it is it is an amazing time that you and I have never seen uh, compared to what we're dealing with now. As a guy who has received that notes column for the better part of the last twenty two years, I don't think anybody does a better notes column than Brent Beard. It is a lot of stuff in there. There is no question about it. And let's dive into some of those notes, Brent. Let's go to your home state. 
the state of Alabama. Look, Nick Saban retires. Obviously, it was a shock for a lot of people. We're a couple of weeks removed. Kalen DeBoer, the brand-new head coach for the Crimson Tide. But good gracious. I mean, transfer portal, guys getting out of there, guys um, leaving that just signed letters of intent that won out of there. I mean, you knew there might be some attrition, Brent, after Saban retired. But, boy, it's kind of ridiculous right now, is it not? Well, the problem that Alabama has is the problem that Washington and Arizona and possibly Michigan uh, are having or about to have uh, in that there's 30 days given to the players of a team when their coach leaves. Now, there's been a lot of talk over the last few days, should that be shortened? And I think there's some validity to that hack. I mean, my goodness, do you really need uh, a month uh, to know what you're going to do when a lot of these guys probably already know what they're going to do? Now, some of the quick coming and going that they did pick up a center in Parker Brasford uh, that, ironically enough, was from Washington. Uh, They also got a commitment from Washington's wide receiver in Jeremy Bernard. Uh, But obviously, uh, the big news would be guys like uh, Caden Proctor, uh, who basically are going back to Iowa and actually (laughs) – actually admitted on on uh, 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 to a reporter that Iowa had been talking to him now for several several weeks, which is probably <laughs> um, a blatant uh, uh, tampering in what they're doing. But, uh, again, we'll, we'll, we'll see if that actually goes anywhere. Uh, Caleb Odom, a tight end, expected to stay at Alabama. Um the, the big thing that happened in the last few days is Julian Singh, uh, who is from California, the number one quarterback in the 2024 class, is going to Ohio State. Now, with that said, Alabama also got a, a big quarterback commit, literally, from Austin Mack, 6'6", 230. Uh, it's supposed to be a really good player. So uh, they're trying to recoup some of those losses. Um, a lot of um, a lot of these guys stayed, and all these guys who left were not starters. So, uh, but, and that's but Alabama's kind of uh, what you would say uh, is an example that we're either seeing with these other teams act, uh, or we're about to see possibly with Michigan. You get Brent Beard on First Coast News. You also get him weekly right here on Hacker After Dark. I mean, Brent for the better part of the last 16, 17 years, I mean, Alabama has been the king of the college football planet, right? I mean, six national titles under Saban, countless other 10, 11, 12 win years, even when they didn't win a title. I mean, it's been Alabama's world for the most part, and everybody's been living in it. But now Saban's gone, and you lost a lot of your better players because Saban's gone. I mean, is there legitimate concern that Alabama – May fall back to the pack and be a eight and four, nine and three football team coming up this year. Well, anything anything is possible, uh, and a lot of that's going to be what this staff can do uh, with Jalen Milrow, and, and can he improve on what he did last year? People may say, well, he was number six in the nation uh, in the Heisman, 
uh, hole, but look, that, there still were a lot of throws he just couldn't make. So a lot of this season are going to be determined by that. I think the thing that people are beginning to, to realize that they hired a coach who's been a coach before. This is They didn't hire Mike Dubose, and they didn't hire Mike Shula. So, and this is a good staff. As a matter of fact, uh, several folks have said this is probably the best staff Alabama's had since probably 2015 when uh, Saban had uh, Kirby on the staff and Lane Kiffin on the staff and Mario Cristobal on the staff and so forth. So, I mean, look, I don't care who you are in this league, there is a uh, um, learning curve, right, uh, with, with, with whoever you're dealing with. Um, so, but, and I think they, I think Alabama would be pretty active in the portal that opens up in April uh, in trying to recoup some of these losses. Uh, and, and look, again, guys like Caleb Downs, you can't replace. He's one of the better players in the nation. So, and oh, by the way, if I can throw this in here real quick, how, how much pressure, along with the exhilaration of the fans, is going to be on Ohio State with all these guys that Ryan Day is bringing in uh, that I've heard, and again, you can't pay attention a whole lot to these numbers, but the, the guys they brought in were something like worth $13 million, uh, and bringing in Junkins from Ole Miss, which tells you uh, uh, the problem with that is it, it's good news. But, Hank, if he loses to Michigan four years in a row, what's going to happen up there? Yeah, it's a good point. You know, and, and because you brought up Ohio State, I was listening to the drill this morning with Hicken and Prosser, and Dan brought up something that I didn't realize, but I thought it was a really interesting point. Yeah, he had read a story as of late that C.J. Stroud, obviously formerly the Ohio State quarterback, had a great rookie year for the Houston Texans, donated roughly $100,000 yeah. to the yeah. Ohio State Collective, right? We're in the world of yeah. collectives now in college right. football. Right. And it got me yeah. thinking. I was like, well, wait a minute. You know, that that's really great of C.J. Stroud and nice and unbelievable for him to do. But if you're a player that these schools make you, right, and get you drafted yeah. and get you millions yeah. of dollars, right. don't you almost kind of deserve or, 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 you know, expected to give back a little bit? And if every Florida player drafted donates 50 to 100 grand to the Gator Collective, all of a sudden the Gator Collective would have a heck of a lot of money. Really would. Uh, I, I mean, in some listen, in some ways, uh, and this may be a bit of a stretch, uh, I mean, that may be uh, more than paying back your scholarship. Uh, but, but oh, I think there's there, there's some real logic to that, especially the play, players who had a good experience at the school. Uh, but, frankly, that, that, that does make some sense, yes. You get Brent Beard on First Coast News. You also get him weekly here on Hacker After Dog. Brent, we talked about the exodus from Alabama. Alabama's loss is Florida's gain as a well-thought-of defensive back who was, I guess, verbally committed and then signed with Alabama, ends up leaving after Saban retires, is now at Florida, and that's one of two guys in the last week that Florida got. Also a big D lineman who signed with Texas got out of that letter of intent, and he is now with the Gators. Yeah, Jameer Grimsley, uh, the defensive back that signed with Alabama, uh, coming back home, as some have said, to Florida. 
So I would agree with that. Certainly, they uh, 2025 Georgia tight end Elias Williams is visiting this weekend. They've also offered um, C.J. Ingram, a quarterback at Hawthorne. His father is Cornelius Ingram. Heck, does that mean you and I are getting older when we when Florida starts uh, starts offering the uh, the children of the former players? Uh, which is also interesting. DeAndre Robinson is committed also to Florida, uh, a defensive lineman. They've had better news as of late, which is great to see, maybe hopefully um, uh, kind of compared to the the NCAA investigation in the Rashada uh, situation. We'll certainly be following that. I also thought it was important, too, the only school with two top four players in the 24 uh, seven player poll was DJ Lagway at number three and LA McCray at number four. So Hank, the Gators had a better week than they've had lately. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Plus they got a win on the hardwood and basketball. And that's where I want to go next, Brent. Now, you and I were talking briefly before we came on here SEC basketball, for a while, was an afterthought, right? It was football country and not a lot of resource were being dedicated to basketball. But as we've gotten further along in the process, really in the last decade and certainly in the last couple of years, you look now at all the resources for Tennessee and the coaching budget and the recruiting budget, the same thing at a place like Ole Miss. We obviously know about Kentucky, uh, but these schools now – are dedicating a lot of resources to men's basketball, and it's really paying off, Brent. The conference now is one of the better conferences in men's hoops, and it got me thinking, you know, if SEC can do it on the hardwood, then why are conferences like ACC football still where they are? I think that's why a lot of ACC fans on the football side are frustrated. They haven't turned that around when you see SEC basketball making the resurgence they have. Yeah, and uh, the other thing for <laughs> for uh, SEC basketball is the number of coaches uh, that uh, this may be the best group of coaches that we've seen in this league uh, in in quite a while. I mean, Rick Barnes has been at Tennessee for a while, and they're playing real well. They need to go further in the postseason. Um, I mean, Nate Oates in Alabama has certainly. Uh, done a good job um, in Alabama and Auburn are playing on uh, Wednesday night, which is going to be important, uh, certainly for that state. Mike White, of all coaches, if you notice this, Hack, uh, George is 13-5 and five and they're 3-2. and two. Chris Beard at Ole Miss is, is going to be really good. I've always liked Buzz Williams at, at, at A&M. Uh, but what they have done is um, not only have they gotten coaches, but they've also upgraded their facilities. I mean, Auburn, for instance, and, and it's, they've had it for a while now, but that's one of the better gyms anywhere. It's pretty intimidating in a lot of ways. I know Alabama's considering doing the same thing, and they need to do it to keep Oates, uh, frankly. But it's a combination of things in and hack. It's like it is a – this league made a commitment a few years ago that they needed to do something in bringing in better players, better coaches, 
and upgrading the facilities, and they've done and, and they have done that. And that's something that uh, the ACC is going to be able to do too. They, they've got to make a commitment to doing the same thing. Maybe Georgia Tech's on the verge of that with Brent Key, or at least he he actually really wants to do that. I mean, Virginia, Virginia Tech really have done very little of anything, and particularly Virginia Tech going down uh, the way they have since uh, Frank Beamer left certainly is is disappointing. Now, FSU, that a whole lot of people don't even realize, is refurbishing their stadium. And my understanding is the stadium is going to be ready uh, totally in, in for the opener in 2025 when Bama comes in, uh, which is going to be a very interesting game. Uh, and Miami still needing to do uh, uh, facility improvements um, also. But then, Hank, you've got other stadiums uh, where they're, uh, they're, what, kind of a half bowl in your end zone is basically a hill uh, with grass. So uh, as many improvements as they've made over the years, uh, they've got a lot of improvements yet to go, don't they? Yeah, they certainly do. Final moments here with Brent Beard. You mentioned Florida State and doing things to Doe Campbell. I remember back in the early to mid-'90s when they called that thing the erector set. That's and right. then the tax, do- the tax dollars here in Florida uh, made that thing an absolute cathedral. But like anything else, you need to keep it up, and that's what they're doing there in Tallahassee. You know, final thought, Brent, and, and we could spend an hour or more on this. I just want to get a brief thought from you. You know, I'm watching these college basketball games, and even Florida. Florida's a prime example. They're the one closest to us. Uh, I know Riley Kugel, right, because he was there last year. Right. I know Will right. Richard, right, because he was there last year. Everybody else is new. Everybody yeah. else is new, yeah. whether right. they're freshmen or transfers. You know, I remember back in the day, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm get get off my lawn moment here, but, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you could turn on Kentucky and Tennessee, and you knew some of the guys that were playing because they had been sure. there, you know, two or three years. Mm-hmm. You turn on a game now that's not your main team that you follow – you don't have a clue who any of these guys are. And I just wonder, the transfer portal is great for the collegiate athlete. As far as college basketball goes, is it hurting the fan? And I hope football never gets to that point. Uh, Agree with that totally. Uh, But we're creeping toward that with football. Uh, And let me me mention this too. Uh, To back up your point, uh, wait until the – NCAA tournament, and and we will hear this, and we do every year, there are a handful of teams that have got what hack uh, on, in their roster. They've got all juniors and seniors, and some of those guys have been there six years. And, and they play together minimum of three or four years. Now, the problem is these are usually uh, uh, your, your – um, uh, your teams from uh, non-Power 5 conferences, but they go a little way in the tournament because of the chemistry they've got together and they've been together so long as compared to uh, your, uh, your, your rival's uh, team uh, that maybe has three or four from the rival's top 50, and they've just put them together and they're doing the best they can do uh, and they end up getting beat by a team that's been together for three or four years, 
and people throw up their hands and ask, well, what? Uh, boy, that's a big upset. I don't understand. And I understand that we're never going to get back to the days of Noah Horford, Brewer, and Green. That'll right. never happen again. Yep. And I'm not necessarily asking for that. But it, it was nice back in the day to watch Gator basketball sure with, you know, Dan Cross and Craig Brown yep. and Andrew DeClerc, right. guys that were there, you know, two or three years. And you had some idea who these guys were as opposed to turning on Gator basketball in November and December and on a 12-man roster, nine of the guys are either freshmen yes. or are new transfers. Yes. So that's just to get off my lawn moment for the week here on Hacker After Dark. Brent, we got 30 seconds. Anything for Florida State or Miami this week? Well, I, 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 the thing I've heard most anything else is uh, is DJ Ungle going to help Florida State. Uh, I don't know. He might. I mean, obviously he's gotten better. Uh, since he was at Clemson in the Pac-12. Uh, but I think the guy that's caught the most attention is Cam Ward, who was maybe head of the draft and come back for uh, to Miami. People may not have heard this, but Talia, um, who is to his brother, played at Maryland, wanted an extra year of eligibility, was denied that. So he won't be playing at Miami, which is unfortunate. And maybe the, the wildest thing that I've heard in years, I'm sure you've seen this, is Miami tight end Kim McCormick, who is coming back for his ninth season, ninth season of college football. Now, he missed about four in a row because he got hurt every year. But, look, uh, that, that's a fun thing to talk about. But, and I'm just throwing this out. Um, you you really wonder, should you count eligibility at some point? And is he keeping a guy that could be playing a younger guy who needs to develop maybe from the starting lineup or even off the roster? He was in the same recruiting class as T.J. Watt back in 2016. Right. I mean, think about that for a second. It's absolutely yeah. Absolutely incredible. Brent Beard, we think he's incredible. He's with us every week here on Hacker After Dark. You also see him on First Coast News. Brent, thank you, my friend. We'll do it again next week. Good. Look forward to it, pal. Take care. Up another guest on the All-Pro Roofing phone line. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. And then there were four. Detroit, San Francisco, Kansas City, and Baltimore are the four teams left. And Championship Sunday should be a heck of a lot of fun. Out in the NFC, the 49ers, that old term, survive and advance. Well, that applied pretty well on Saturday night. I'm not sure if they outplayed Green Bay, but they found a way to win the game. And this time of the year, that is all that matters. Our guy out in San Francisco is Jose Sanchez. He's with all49ers.com. And he's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Jose, how you doing? I'm doing great, my friend, Ryan. I always appreciate you inviting me on. Hey, Jose, thank you, bud. You and I talked last week, and we both knew, I think, Green Bay was coming in hot, but good grief. I mean, they Green Bay played well. San Francisco, maybe not their A game, but again, survive in advance, Jose. And to San Francisco's credit, they found a way to get it done in the end. Yeah, and look, I honestly, I, I had written, I think, even the day of or the day after I hopped on with you that this is the most dangerous Packers team that the 49ers are facing as, a, as, as compared to their uh, 
2021 matchup and 2019 matchup in the NFC title game against them. And I know those teams had a better defense, Aaron Rodgers, Devontae Adams, yada, yada, yada. But to me, this Packers team was surging. You know, they were they were looking great the last two months. Jordan Love, Aaron, Rod- Aaron Jones is clicking. And there's just something to say about a team that has nothing to lose. And they came into the San Francisco Santa Clara and literally played like a team with nothing to lose who was surging and literally were trying to dominate the 49ers. And they kind of did punch the 49ers in the mouth. That's really the way you have to attack the Niners, go on the ground, go on the control the clock, you know, make their defense feel like, oh, my God, these guys can actually keep up with us. Like, make, make them know that the reality is there, that we can compete with you guys. And that's what they did. You know, they, they really did outplay and outcoach the 49ers for the majority of that game. But the problem is, you know, the 49ers, are, there's a reason why they're number one seed. You know, they're well coached and they have a lot of talent. Whereas just because, like, you're playing them for three quarters doesn't mean you're going to escape and, like, you know, come out with the win. They're still good enough where all they need is one quarter or how we saw in the final drive of that game is, is one is one final drive for them just to get, get, it, get it going. You know, that fourth quarter defense really tightened up. And then the offense started clicking a little more, and then Brock Purdy actually like started looking normal for once because he was future that game for most of it. So yeah, you know Green Bay tip of the cap. That's some. That's a team that feels like is going to be like probably the main threat against the 49ers next year if San Francisco continues their high level of success. Jose, what's the vibe been out there since Saturday night? Is it relief that they won the game? Are people frustrated with the way they played? How would you describe it? Um, yeah, there's definitely frustrations because honestly, I understand there was elements in this game. You know, the rain is definitely going to be a deterring factor in the, to an extent because look, I, I've been living here all my life. Rain is not something that's common here. You know, I, it's, it's something that happens, but it's not something that like, okay, like it's going to really affect it. And it really did affect that game, but I don't, I don't view that as an excuse. You know, it's like you guys were rested. You guys had a buy, you guys had enough preparation. This is a number seven C team. And you're facing a team who's coming off a, a six-day uh, a six-day uh, rest. Like, they just literally played six days ago, and they have to come cross-country again, or, or kind of. I know they're in the middle of the country, but still, you had everything on your side. There was, to me, it was the, that performance was kind of inexcusable, but in a way, it kind of also was like, in the way the 49ers are turning it, and they should, is, wow, we really fought like an adversity game. You know, we really fought a game where we were in a hole, we were kind of getting beat. Because honestly, I don't. It kind of feels like people want to be like, "Oh, was it rest with the 49ers? Because they did risk most a lot of their starters in their regular season finale game. But to me, it wasn't so much that it was rest. It was just look, the Packers came to play, you know. And I don't think it was so much even the 49ers were shooting themselves in the foot either, because they've had those losses this year. The Packers came to play. Um, you guys were well rested, and it kind of wasn't excusable how you guys looked. Now, that was a good chance for you to really turn it and be like, "Wow, we know now we're." Our, our mindsets can be pushed to that limit, like a fear of losing, not fear of losing, but like, wow, we really got to, we really have no, no, um, no threshold of mistakes. You know, room for error is very, is very minimal right now. So I think that's something that could benefit them. But yeah, I think right now for sure, like the kind of feels like the consensus, like, what, what was that that we just watched? Like, God, how did we escape against the Packers? Jose Sanchez, all 49ers.com here with us on 1010 XL in Jacksonville what's being overlooked Jose to me is that was a big time drive by Brock Purdy right in the offense there in the fourth quarter things aren't going your way you're down Green Bay is smelling the upset but yet Green Bay or uh, San Francisco rather offensively took the ball did what they needed to do ultimately finding the end zone there with Christian McCaffrey that was a big time drive oh yeah it was especially like like you said like you're playing very poorly for majority of that game and then for you not to be 
that rattled to come out in the final drive and make several impactful throws to at least sustain the drive. And then you set up McCaffrey for that, for that touchdown. Like that was, that's, that's literally what Purdy to me that he put on display his most elite slash greatest trait. And that's his mental toughness. Like that's one thing, like I feel you can never doubt about him. You know, he may not have elite arm, elite mobility, or even the most elite processing. He does a lot of that at, at a very exceptionally high level. But I think no matter what, mental fortitude, there's something about having that that confidence, that unshakable, you know, that unshakable mind as a quarterback, especially where, you know, you get in those high crunch time moments where like, hey, this is the game for the season and, and you fold and you shake. You know, we saw that with Jordan Love where, where he first down, he's flushing out when it was his turn to respond. And he just throws like, a, ah, I don't care. Like, a, it literally was like, I don't care kind of throw. Like, what the heck was that? Whereas Purdy is just like, he's just, he's just calm and collected. Like, all right, it'll be fine. Like, I got this despite being in a rain, which is clear rain is his kryptonite, you know, because the last time he played this poorly was, wasn't against the Ravens. I thought he, I think his worst game to date was week six against the Browns. And that's so happened to be in the rain as well. So rain's his kryptonite. And then you have, and then you also like, there's just, there's nothing on his side that was really giving him momentum, but still it, it doesn't matter whether it's pressure in his face all day in, in a game by actual linemen or pressure of the moment. He, it doesn't phase him. That's what's crazy to me. How doesn't it phase him? That's what he's so. That's what really he puts on display, and so far, it, luckily he didn't he didn't turn over the ball. He still, he did the moments, but yeah, heck of a job by him to really pull through in the end. Jose Sanchez, all 49ers.com. Now, Jose, the people that read your work on your website, they'll be rooting for San Francisco on Sunday. The people in that stadium will be rooting for San Francisco on Sunday. I'm not sure how many other people Jose are going to be rooting <laughs> for San Francisco on Sunday. Detroit is America's darling right now. People love Dan Campbell. They love the story. I'm sure you can appreciate what that organization has been through. I know it's early in the week, but what is the early thought on, you know, the new America's team, at least for 2023-24, the Detroit Lions coming out to the Bay Area there for the NFC title game? Uh, yeah, I think everyone wants to crush their hopes and dreams and continue to make them relevant <laughs> in terms of winning the Super Bowl. Um, but in terms of like the matchup, I think, uh, it's, it kind of provides a little bit of a scary, of a scary aspect that I see, because to me, it's not really going to be, you know, 49ers offense against Lions defense. Like I, I'm not really worried about the 49ers offense. And right now, Debo Samuel is kind of a toss up for that game, whether he plays or not. I feel like it's, it's going to be significant, but I don't think it's going to be detrimental in terms of the offense against the Lions defense. I really am worried about 49ers defense against the Lions on offense because really, you know, the strength of the Lions is, is clearly their offense. You know, Jared Goff looks to be playing at a, an extraordinarily high level, which is not really common for him for most of his career, but right now he's probably playing his best ball ever. And you got, you know, that, that two-headed monster running back with David Montgomery and Jameer, and Jameer Gibbs, who gives me flashes of Jamal Charles, I feel like, with him. And then you have all-pro Amon Ross St. Brown and then uh, several other key receivers and Sam Laborda. So to me, it's like, can this 49ers defense hold these guys to less than 24 points? Because I think that's what's going to be key. If you ended up in a shootout, I wonder who's going to break first. And to me, it, the 49ers pass rush has not really been dominant. Like, it's there. They're getting pressure. Like, they're making impact. But it's not. they're not just getting there. You know, it's, it's not enough. And then you have the Niners secondary, which they have a good corner in Tiberius Ford. But what about the rest? You know, Embry Thomas was getting picked on so constantly throughout the game. And he actually has been playing really well ever since he actually got his first start against your guys' team, the Jaguars. He's been actually clicking pretty high. 
for this game was really was like, whoa, that's like rookie year Ambry Thomas where he just panics. He's like a deer in headlights when he sees the ball and doesn't make a play. I'm worried about if the 49ers are too stubborn to put their best corner on Amon Ra and just let the rest work. But even then, they're, they're, some of the receivers are pretty talented enough that they can gash them. I, I, I think that's where everyone, I think, should be the focus on, you know, from a schematic standpoint, is like that's really what's going to come key. Can the 49ers defense make some stops and even get some turnovers, or are they just going to get ran through? Because what we just saw last week, too, they can't do too well against the pass, but especially the run defense. The run defense was so bad. That was the first time the Niners have allowed a 100-yard rusher, I believe, and gosh, uh, under Kyle Shanahan, that might have been, I think, since 2019, 2018, something like that. But, yeah, it's just it's just now you got Montgomery. It's just everything is going against them right now. That's like they have literally – Lions have literally the, the ingredients to make the 49ers defense look average, and it's it's really going to be what the 49ers are going to do about it. Can you guys – because you looked average against the Packers team that's significantly lesser than the Lions. What are you going to do when against the Lions when they actually have a proper weeks of rest? Final moments with Jose Sanchez, all49ers.com. Jose, Jared Goff obviously has been in this position and further. He went to the Super Bowl, but most of the Lion players – have not been in a game like this. Most of the 49er players have been in a game like this. They were in the game last year in the NFC title game. Do you think that factors in at all, the experience of a big game atmosphere? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and honestly, I think that was one thing that was going to be looked at with the Packers, right, is like their young team, do they have experience? But I think ultimately it, what it really comes down to is uh, it's, it's two steps. Like, one, how is, how is the moment going to – How's the moment going to feel when you enter in there? Are you going to be timid? Are you going to be shaky? Um, if not, okay, cool. How are you going to answer answer it if you're facing a deficit? Like, let's say the 49ers are up 14 nothing, and it's like middle of the second quarter. Do the Lions start to fold? Because you're on the road. Um, the, suddenly the bright lights start really kicking in. So that's where I think that experience really kicks in. I, I'm not. I, I'm definitely not worried about the 49ers feeling that. Um and honestly, as much as that could come into play to the Lions, I'm not too much of a concern to you that that will fall to them because otherwise, you know, you hosted two games and you looked, you looked pretty pretty dang strong like you have done all season long. Um, but I think the difference is here, what's going to come crucial for the 49ers is Jared Goff outside of a dome. He doesn't – that's one thing I have noticed ever since back to his L.A. Ram days when he used to come to Levi's Well, when I first started covering the Niners is this guy, like, you get him outside, it's not necessarily – you're going to see the Jared Goff that you've been seeing. <laughs> and luckily, I mean, luckily on the side of him, he's going to be with, with a with nice weather. It shouldn't be raining at this time next week, but he should get nice weather, so he shouldn't see much of a drop off. But that's one thing I think if you're a 49ers, you're going to bank on. But, yeah, I think you got Goff there. you got some other players. I think they'll be locked in. But the 49ers definitely got the edge on that experience. Jose, final question. You and I last week used the terms like failure, disappointment. 49ers won a game, beat Green Bay. They're in the NFC title game again. Is it Super Bowl or bust even after the win over Green Bay? Do they need to win this game, or would this season be considered a failure? Yep, Super Bowl or bust. If you lose to the Lions, there is no, well, you lost to the Lions. It's their time. You know, like, like you just mentioned, they're America's team right now. Like, no, 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 no. You need to crush that dream. <laughs> there is no, because all every year, no matter what, again, it's always been – we're running it back. This is our year. Since 2019, outside of 2020, this is this. There, the Niners are the first team to go to three straight NFC t- championship games since themselves from 2011 to 2013. So now is the, now is no better time for you. Hopefully, third time's a charm for you guys because it's you always are on the doorstep. 
and you were actually there in the Super Bowl just four or five years ago. So now's the time for you to get there. No excuses. It doesn't matter how good the Lions look. This is your chance. Again, like I said last week, you have your quarterback. You have all the pieces in place. It's not just even winning this game. It's not even just getting to the Super Bowl. You win it. If not, failure. There's no there's no excuse, nothing. Failure. Jose, what kind of game do you see on Sunday? I assume you think San Francisco will win. Will it be close? Yeah, I think it'll be fairly close. Honestly, I think the Packers game kind of made me feel a little bit more like, hmm, okay, to the 49ers because, again, they were coming off a bye, rested, repaired, right, against a lesser team. And they just, again, elements, I'm sure, played a part in it. But then again, Debo Samuel was out, and it was clear that his game, that the game plan was going to be revolved around him. But let's say Debo doesn't play that game. It's still going to hurt, but the 49ers will be better prepared because they'll have more plays, more – Kyle Sandler will have more of a game plan to attack the Lions without him. Whereas before, it was like, wow, they pretty much put all the chips on the table on Samuel, and now he's gone. Now we got to start pulling pulling rabbits out of our hat here. So I think they'll be more prepared for that. And again, I, I think ultimately the Lions are going to do a good job of really attacking the 49ers defense and find success. But it's just hard for me not to pull for the 49ers in terms of, you know, they just, they just have done it all year long. And I know the Lions kind of were leaking a little towards that end and they're kind of clicking right now again. But ultimately, it's it comes down to like Jared Goff to me. I think Jared Goff just against the 49ers, the way he's, I think he's just going to give it up. I can see it probably being like 49ers 31, Packers, I mean, excuse me, Lions 28. Like, very, fairly close. Like, it's kind of hard for me to really think that the Niners are going to do what they did in the regular season and blow teams out. I think the Lions make it a game. 30 seconds, Jose. It's early in the week, but what's your gut tell you about Debo Samuel? I think he's going to play. I feel like he's going to tough it out. I don't think he's – I think even if he's just 60%, he's going to really force it. I would ex- I would expect he doesn't play – he doesn't practice at all this week. And if anything, he probably gets in, like, side field work, and then on Friday he gets limited – uh, since that's pretty much a walkthrough, because I just I just know how he he really wants this, and I think no matter what, he's really going to try hard to play. Like especially the way he came out last week, I'm pretty sure he didn't want to come out, and it was just no choice. Jose Sanchez, all 49ers.com. Jose, I know you're busy, man. Thank you for the time. If San Francisco's heading to Vegas, we'll probably dial your phone next week, pal. Sounds good, Ryan. Thank you so much, brother. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville, we are glad you are with us. The Florida Gators added a couple of big-time prospects in the transfer portal earlier this week. Well, one actually is an incoming freshman, part of the 2024 class that originally signed with Texas but has now made his way to Florida. So a lot going on on the gridiron, and the Gator basketball program gets a nice road win against Missouri. We'll see if that can catapult them into a couple of wins here in the middle part of the conference slate. With that, let's go down to Gainesville. My buddy Jacob Rudner of 247sports.com, always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL. Jacob, how you doing? I'm good, Brian. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. Hey, Jacob, always thank you for joining us, man. And uh, look, Florida football The news never stops, right? Comings and goings. The transfer portal in totality, before we talk about the individual guys, Jacob, how would you assess the players that left Florida compared to the players that Florida brought in? Your thoughts on the transfer portal to this point? Yeah, I think it's been a mixed bag for Florida this offseason. We've seen some really good. I think that the addition of Brandon Crenshaw-Dixon, the left tackle, from San Diego State is really strong for the Gators, and he's representative of some of the highs of the portal. But we've definitely seen some lows, and I don't think that there's any denying that. I know you and I have talked previously 
uh, about Florida losing guys like Trevor Etienne or Princely Uman Mielin, guys who were either already contributors for the Gators uh, or in a position to become a contributor for the Gators in 2024. Uh, and I think it's true. You know, it sounds cheesy, but the, the, the portal giveth and the portal taketh away. Uh, and I think Florida's experienced both ends of that spectrum pretty clearly so far this offseason. Well, the crazy thing, I mean, ETN transfers to Georgia. All right. You man me Ellen to Ole Miss. Okay. Chris McClellan to Missouri, in case people missed that. And then Richie Leonard to Florida State. So you could argue the best Gator players that are in the portal are all transferring to schools, and they're going to play against Florida in 2024. There's no doubt about that. And I, I, Like I said, Florida lost talent this offseason, and there's no doubt about that. Princely Uman Mielin, in my mind, is one of the better pass rushers in the country. He does a really good job at winning his individual assignment and making an impact you know, really consistently when he's on the field. Trevor Etienne was the same way. Chris McClellan, who you mentioned, is a guy who is ready to start in the SEC. I would imagine that if he stayed at Florida, that was something that was well within the cards for him in 2024. Now he's going to go and do that at Missouri. Uh, th there have been plenty of transfers who will compete against the Gators. I believe it's seven now, as of you and I having this conversation on January 22nd. Uh, there are seven guys who stayed within the conference for the Gators. And, and there's a reason for that. So... Yes. Did Florida lose talent this offseason? Absolutely. Uh, I also, like I said, think that they brought in guys who are going to be adequate replacements. Uh, but but to your point, uh, there are guys who Florida will see again next year. Jacob Rudner, 247sports.com. Let's talk about two of the newest additions. Jacob, take me through this. The young man that signed with Texas on the D-line asked out of his letter of intent and is now coming to Florida. What was the process there? Yeah, DeAndre Robinson, a four-star prospect, good player, Florida native. Uh, this is a guy who Florida pursued quite heavily when he was an uncommitted high school prospect. He then inks with Texas. Texas undergoes some coaching changes in its assistant department. Uh, the individual who was responsible for recruiting DeAndre Robinson takes a job at LSU. Robinson at that point cools on Texas, uh, and he essentially has described it to us as a business decision. He felt as though it was best for him to enter the portal once that, excuse me, to uh, get out of his, his letter of intent. Uh, you gotta, you gotta bear with all the lingo here. There's a lot of different ways that guys can move schools now, uh, but nonetheless that he wanted out of Texas and then immediately it seemed Florida became the top option. The Gators had a good relationship with Robinson prior to his commitment to Texas. Uh, I think that that had a lot to do with Billy Napier and Austin Armstrong as evidenced by the fact that he's now enrolled at Florida. So Sean Spencer's departure wasn't really too much of a big deal there. Uh, this is a guy who's been connected to Florida for a long time, and it took the scenic route, uh, but the Gators end up winning that recruiting battle. You know, with Robinson, and I go with a guy like Grayson Howard too, people are upset when Florida finishes second, for lack of better terminology, in a recruitment of a player. But sometimes it's not a bad thing to finish second because if it doesn't work out for the player at school A – then Florida's at the top of their list. I think you saw that with Robinson. I think you also saw that with Grayson Howard when he left South Carolina. Sure, and I think that there's something to be said in today's day and age of college football, or college sports in general for that matter, that the recruitment does not stop at the enrollment, and that wasn't always the case. We now live in a world where uh, finances are going to be really important to players. How well can they be compensated 
from an NIL standpoint. And if those things don't shake out, as well as other contributing factors, such as playing time and overall happiness, uh, there is a very easy way to move on and to find another situation for yourself that does check more of those boxes. So uh, I think we are now in a, in a phase of college athletics in general where it is important to recruit every kid you like down to the wire. Let them sign somewhere else if that's what has to happen. But to stay in the good graces of these families and the athletes themselves is huge. And we're learning that firsthand this offseason with the Gators. You mentioned a couple guys, Grayson Howard, great relationship with the Florida staff, ends up entering the portal after a year at South Carolina. He's a Gator. DeAndre Robinson is one of those guys. Jameer Grimsley, who we haven't even talked about yet, uh, from Alabama, was, was somebody who was with the Crimson Tide for a couple months, uh, was already on campus. Nick Saban announces his, his shocking retirement. Grimsley ends up in the portal. The Gators, who finished second in his recruitment, end up winning out. So uh, this is clearly something that's going to continue to be a trend within college football. And I do think it's important. Florida has to continue to fight these battles in recruiting, even if not to win, but to stay in the good graces of some of these kids and their families. Jacob Rudner of 247sports.com. He mentioned Jameer Grimsley from Alabama. Look, it's a mass exodus out of Tuscaloosa after Saban retired. It's been crazy what's happened there. And Florida finally gets to take advantage of that with Grimsley. Tell us about Grimsley and what type of player is he? Yeah, a, a, a former two-way star, so he played a little bit of offense in high school. Uh, ended up being a cornerback at the college level, which is Florida's plan uh, with him as well. This is a guy who's quick, fast twitch, uh, a good player really within that mold of, of speed, a verifiable speed, as Billy Napier likes to call it, uh, which is a really big deal for this Florida staff. And so he checks a lot of boxes for them. And again, as somebody who they were really close with, they like his character, which is also a big deal here. Uh, you know, culturally, I know Florida uh, places a lot of emphasis on those types of aspects, and, and he checks those boxes too. So an all-around good ad, uh, somebody who they were looking to get out of high school didn't occur the first time, and as is kind of the theme of URNI conversation so far, uh, they end up winning anyway. You know, things were down a little bit. They had a bad signing day, Florida did, and, and, and we know that things were a little frustrating for Gator fans, but now all of a sudden you add Robinson, and you add Grimsley, and and. Maybe it doesn't seem as bad now, Jacob, as it once did maybe a month or so ago. Well, it certainly doesn't seem as bad. And I will say this, though. You know, there are still areas that I think need to be addressed. And so to the people who are out there saying, yes, this is better than we maybe initially gave credit for, but I'm still not convinced, I don't blame you. To the people who were happy all along and happier now, I don't blame you either. I, I would say this. Offensive line is an area of concern to me. Florida really struggled in that department last season, uh, hasn't really done much to address the interior depth. You lose a guy like Kingsley Aguakin, you lose a guy like Richie Leonard, and you're replacing with underclassmen and guys who aren't as experienced. That, to me, is a yellow flag at a minimum. Uh, do I think Florida got better at the tackle positions? I do. I really like Brandon Crenshaw-Dixon, as I said earlier. Uh, Devin Manuel out of Arkansas is also talented, although more of a developmental prospect. And that's it. Florida doesn't have the room to be starting true freshmen. And I really like a guy like Fletcher Westpaw, the, the four-star offensive tackle, but you can't trust true freshmen at that position in the SEC. And so I think that more work could be done there. Do I think that everything is perfect and as designed on defense? Maybe the cornerback room is really young right now. Jason Marshall is the only upperclassman in the room at the moment. 
Uh, Devin Moore is the next closest thing. He's a 30-year sophomore, but he's only played 12 games in his collegiate career, so not terribly experienced. I think Florida could maybe benefit uh, from somebody at that position as well, and you could do the same across the roster a little bit. Uh, but, but listen, they did a good job in the portal, I think. Uh, they added some depth at positions that really needed it. Uh, and, and so, yes, is it better than it was at signing day or at least how it looked on signing day? I would say uh, probably so. Jacob, as we begin to wrap up, I want to get to basketball at the end. Final football question for right now. Spring football, roughly, what, six weeks away? Um, Graham Mertz, I saw a video of him that Florida put out that he's back in the weight room after that collarbone injury last year. I mean, he's the guy, right? Is there going to be any competition between he and Lagway in spring drills, or is the understanding that it's certainly Mertz's job and Lagway is going to be an observer this year? I don't know about observer, and I wouldn't go as far as to call Lagway that yet. I will go as far as to call Graham Mertz the clear-cut starter, though. Uh, that's something that even the Lagways are aware of and signed on the dotted line having known. Uh, D, you know, DJ Lagway has talked publicly uh, about his desire to learn from Mertz and to kind of be the understudy in year one. However, there is an expectation widely, both among the Lagway family, uh, you know, myself and, and, and sounds like the coaching staff, uh, that there will be opportunities for Lagway to see the field. That seems like something that's going to be built in regardless, uh, whether or not he's going to be able to, you know, surmount Graham Mertz and take over the starting role as a true freshman. I don't think so. I even kind of doubt it. Uh, but we will see both quarterbacks throughout the season. Yeah, I had DJ on on signing day last month, and he was very complimentary of Graham Mertz and couldn't wait to start working with him. So that's great to see if you're a Gator fan. Final moments with Jacob Rudner of 247sports.com covering the Florida Gators. Jacob, Gator basketball got a big road win. Look, I know Missouri's not very good, but any conference road win is a good one, and it was one Todd Golden needed. I mean, one and three in conference play. Things were slipping away a little bit. They go on the road. They beat Missouri, and hopefully that can be a turning point for their season. Yeah, and I would add that this is kind of an important stretch here for the Gators, and it started with that game at Missouri. Not a game that I thought Florida would lose, and it was more of those, you know, the type of contest where you go there and you lose that game, it's really bad. You win that game, you did what you were supposed to do. And so I think Florida took care of business uh, is a fair way to put that. Uh, they did play well, but it now has to parlay into these next two games. Wednesday, they play at home against uh, Mississippi State. Mississippi State is a top 35 team analytically, depending on where you look. Uh, good squad. It's in Gainesville. Should be to Florida's advantage. Have to win that game. That's an opportunity. Uh, it's a game that, you know, depending on how Mississippi State season shakes out, could even become a quad one win uh, towards the end of the season. Then you have Georgia at home. So Mike White comes uh, Saturday and plays in the O-Dome. That's going to be a game that obviously Georgia is going to want to try and get up for. Florida will have to do the same and match its energy. Uh, but these games need to be wins, in my opinion, Ryan. Why? Because the games after that are really difficult. At Kentucky, at Texas A&M, and then returning home for Ken Palm number 4 Auburn, not an easy stretch. I think you need three wins to go into what could easily be three losses. Jacob, the Gator basketball team, they're good, right? I mean, they got good play in the backcourt. They're big. I mean, Tyree Samuels, a rebounding machine. Condon's going to be a good player. He's young, but I like him. Why do you think they've struggled out of the gate in conference play? Uh, look, I mean, I think the first thing that needs to be said is this. SEC basketball is not an easy 
thing to navigate. It is challenging every year. Some of the best teams in the country play in this conference. And there is really no such thing as a gimme game outside of maybe one or two of your opponents every year. And it just so happens that we've seen the Gators play some of the conference's best teams. Kentucky is looking like a Final Four candidate so far this season. It's a really good squad that Calipari has put together. It came here. It showed Florida who was boss in the end of the game. Florida wasn't able to close. Played a really good game, though, and showed what they were capable of. Ole Miss, I think, is an underrated squad this year. They put, you know, they, they, they put the hurt on Florida. That was a tough loss for sure. But still, it's a good team. And then you look at Tennessee, who is just annihilating opponents, especially when they're in Knoxville. So, uh, you know, are, are the losses the worst in the grand scheme of things? Probably not. And I think it's very recoverable. We do see a trend here where Florida could potentially be four and three through its first seven SEC games. You win nine or ten league games. You've got a really good shot at the tournament when you're an SEC team. So, you know, I think that it's not terribly devastating, nor does it tell us too much. I think it says a lot about the quality of Florida's opponents. And I would stick with this. Florida does have a lot of potential, and these next couple games will kind of demonstrate just how good they really are. That's a good point. The Gators 2-3 and three in conference play, but as Jacob said, two very winnable games coming up against Mississippi State and against Mike White and the Georgia Bulldogs. Jacob Rudner, 247sports.com, covering the Florida Gators. Jacob, tell the good folks here in Jacksonville when they head over to the website what they can look forward to over the coming days and weeks. Yeah, this is an exciting time. Uh, we got Florida baseball coming up here February 16th, home opener. Uh, that's going to be exciting, and Swamp 247 is going to have tons of preview content there. Of course, basketball is in full swing, and as you said, Ryan, at the start of the show, uh, it's never a slow news day for Florida football. So uh, constant coverage, all three sports kind of converging at once right now, and if you're looking for uh, info on all three, you know where to find it. He's one of our guys over in Gainesville, Jacob Rudner, covering the Florida Gators. Jacob, I know you're busy, man. Thank you, brother. We'll do it again soon. Appreciate it, Ryan. Have a good one. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville, we are glad you are with us. It has been two weeks since the Jaguars relieved defensive coordinator Mike Caldwell of his duties, and they have a brand new defensive coordinator hired. Ryan Nielsen of the Atlanta Falcons spent last year in Atlanta as the D.C. He now will come to Jacksonville to try to rebuild what was a defense that faltered very much down the stretch here in the 2023 season. With that, let me head up to Atlanta. One of our guys up there, of course, is D. Orlando Ledbetter of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. D. Orlando, how are you, man? Hey, I'm doing great, Ryan. Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, buddy, we always appreciate it, and thank you for joining us on short notice all right, Ryan Nielsen, he wasn't in Atlanta very long, I believe only one year as the defensive coordinator. Tell Jaguar fans about him a little bit. Yeah, he came from the Saints and uh, was brought in to uh, put together you know, a unit here that they had spent a lot of money on a free agency, and they proved, improved dramatically on his watch in the one year, uh, doubling their sack totals from 21 to 42, uh, finishing in the top 10 against the pass and uh, right outside the top 10 in yards allowed at 11. So those were uh, good enough numbers to, you know, maybe make it to the playoff if you got a little bit of on the other side. But, yeah, great uh, one-year tenure 
here in Atlanta for Ryan Nielsen. Now, I know you were familiar with him in the NFC South, right? He came from New Orleans, I believe. So what you saw from him in New Orleans, what he brought to Atlanta, uh, did he change at all over his coaching career at all to this point? Yeah, um, you know, down in New Orleans, they were based 4-3. Uh, you know, Cam Jordan was the uh, stud in uh, uh, down there for years. They uh, led the league in sacks from his period of 2017 to 222 with 280, 282 sacks. Uh, but they played a more traditional 4-3, uh, evolved into kind of a, a hybrid 3-4 here. Uh, uh, 3-4-4-3 mix where they could slide it in and out. Uh, he's going to try to, um, you know, bring his linebackers. To, you know, he's going to get some pressure however he can get it. If he can get it with the front four, fine. If he can't, you know, he'll bring it from everywhere. Uh, you know, the slot corner, the safety, uh, you know, uh, both linebackers. He's going to try to – he's not going to let the quarterback sit back there and get comfortable, especially on third downs. The Orlando Ledbetter of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution here with us on 1010XL. The Jaguars hire Ryan Nielsen as their new defensive coordinator. Nielsen spent last year with the Atlanta Falcons. The Orlando, from what you're saying, it sounds like Nielsen would be considered an aggressive defensive coordinator. Yes, and, you know, but he's got to cover his corners up, too, you know. Um, uh, there's times where, uh, you know, uh, if you're going to be going after the quarterback, you can't leave those corners out on the island too long. you got to get there. So uh, if you don't have the man corners, he can't do it. So he can play cover shell if he's got to, but uh, he he preferred uh, not, not to do that. Uh, you know, he had a good uh, all-pro safety in Jesse Bates. I'm sure he'll be, uh, uh, you know, mentioned. He was a big part of helping to to clean up a lot of things back there, uh, you know. But, yeah, he likes to get up front with the uh, the tackles. He had Grady Jarrett and David Ayamata for half of the season, and Grady Jarrett got hurt. Uh, so he's done it a couple different ways uh, in New Orleans and here. You know, it's interesting in that Jacksonville reportedly asked to interview him a couple of weeks ago after Arthur Smith was fired, and reportedly the Falcons denied that request, and then all of a sudden – they opened up their coaches to speak to other teams. Do you know anything about how that all went down? Yeah, um, you know, they wanted to, you know, starting out their search, you know, at, at ground zero, they wanted to um, have the coaches who were under contract available for the new coach if he wanted them. But as they've moved into their search, they uh, have seen who some of the potential candidates are and who they would be bringing on their staff. So, uh, that has allowed them to review those initial decisions on a case-by-case -case basis. And, um, you know, Dwayne Ledford, the line coach, missed out on the Giants' job. Uh, Marquise Williams uh, was uh, asked to be interviewed for some jobs, too. But um, So they must be pleased with what they're hearing from the candidates uh, that they've interviewed um, about the defensive coordinator position that allowed them to, to let Ryan Nielsen go before they even have their coach pick couple of more for D. Orlando Edbetter of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You mentioned some of the assistants under Ryan Nielsen. And again, I'm asking you to, to guess here, but you certainly know better than we do here in Jacksonville. Do you think it's possible Nielsen wants to bring anybody that was on his staff in Atlanta with him to Jacksonville? Yeah, possibly. Jerry Gray is, you know, gets a lot of credit for uh, 
helping with the secondary and helping uh, Nelson. You know, they, you know, Jerry has uh, been a longtime veteran coach, but he's close to Arthur Smith. Uh, you know, Nelson didn't bring the staff together. It was it wasn't his staff, but he does coach the defensive line, so you'll have those guys there. Frank Bush was already here uh, as the linebackers coach under Arthur Smith, um, so you know he could be a candidate. Uh, and then Steve Jackson was uh, here for the uh, from the Bengals, you know, so he doesn't have a lot of connections to these guys. They kind of brought him uh, in to uh, go with some of Arthur Smith's guys the original staff guys, and uh, uh, they really weren't connected before here in Atlanta. You know, it's interesting you say that, and I want to throw some future Falcon questions at you here in one moment in the time we have left. Uh, as far as you mentioned the secondary, now we've already seen things online. Is he man-to-man? Is he zone? He likes to get after the quarterback, but you alluded earlier, how does that affect the secondary? How do you assess the Orlando, the Falcons secondary this year, under Nielsen, what type of coverage did they run primarily? They were primarily zone, but, uh, and you know, uh, there's some games where they would go zone, man. They mixed it up a lot. Uh, Jesse, um, you know, they, they left uh, Richie Grant and man too much, and he got beat by tight ends. They couldn't, they couldn't fix that. Uh, and so later on in the year, they started playing uh, some big nickel packages with three safeties, and that, that seemed to work for them, uh, you know, moving Grant down and putting Helms and Bates back uh, deep. But uh, Clark Phillips was a, a rookie they got in the forefront out of Utah that they were leaving in man coverage late in the season. And, you know, traveling, A.J. Uh, Terrell was the top receiver from the other team. So his preference is man, but uh, if he can't play it, you know, you know they, uh, they'll try to, you know, cover it up with whatever they have to to uh, allow them to play coverage if they have to. Well, while we have you here again, Ryan Nielsen coming from the Falcons to the Jaguars, he was available because Arthur Smith was fired a couple of weeks ago. And boy, Atlanta is at the center of the coaching carousel. Do Orlando? I mean, you hear Jim Harbaugh for a second interview. We know Bill Belichick for a second interview. You're certainly the guy in Atlanta to ask when it comes to covering the Falcons what do you think ultimately happens there with their head coaching search? Yeah, well, we uh, we ident- I had a story on January the 11th identifying Coach Belichick as the target of the Falcons. Um, you know, certainly they'll go through the process and uh, they'll uh, certainly uh, try to, you know, inter- interview everybody, comply with all the rules, but feel it, fully expect that, to, you know, him being their number one target. Uh, Raheem Morris as a uh, second target. And then from there, you know, uh, maybe some of these other candidates impress them and uh, they go in a different direction. Uh, uh, Mike Vrabel is going to come in and talk. Uh, it's pretty clear they think they're further down the road uh, than a lot of people think they are and I think they're closer to returning to the playoffs. You know, they don't need a quarterback, but they they don't appear ready to go with another coordinator who's guessing. They want a proven winner, uh, a head coach who knows what he's doing. He's not out there, you know, experimenting for the first time. And uh, that's why you've seen head coaching, uh, former head coaches be a part of this uh, interviewing process like Belichick, Harbaugh, Vrabel, Raheem Morris. All those guys have been head coaches before. D. Orlando Ledbetter of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Final question. I mean, if it were to be Belichick, if you're right, and again, you had that story, what, over two weeks ago now, if that were to be the case, 
I mean, what does that do to that city? You're you're as familiar with that city as anybody. I mean, Bill Belichick coming to coach the Atlanta Falcons. If that happens, what does what does their city think about that? Yeah, well, they're automatically relevant now. Um, you know, they're they're back on the block as far as being talked about and uh, uh, being a a team that you you know uh, that has the coach who's won and dominated the league for the last you know couple decades. So. Uh, now, uh, what, you know, you're going to get some players in here. You got to get a quarterback after that. He's going to be able to do it without that. So, uh, yeah, it, it would boost the profile of the Falcons and make them, um, you know, at least on paper until they get some more players in here, a bona fide contender in the NFC South. Yeah, it would look very strange seeing the hoodie there with Bill Belichick in the ATL, but it might happen. In fact, it looks like it would be a surprise maybe at this point if it does not happen. D. Orlando Ledbetter of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, really appreciate you joining us on short notice. Thank you as always, my friend, and we'll talk again soon. Sure, no problem, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Back here on 1010XL at 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville as the high school spotlight rolls on the coaching carousel in high school football. Not near as wild as it has been in the last couple of years, but still a very big job opening at Sandalwood High School, one of the biggest public schools in Jacksonville is no more. They got a brand new head coach. His name is Brad Kessel, formerly the defensive coordinator at Nice. He is now the new head man for the Sandalwood Saints, and Coach Kessel joins us here on 1010XL. Coach, how you doing? I'm doing great, Ryan. How you doing today? Hey, Coach, we're good. Congratulations, man. What a what a situation for you. Uh, you've been in the coaching fraternity for years, I believe, both in Ohio and now here at Florida, most recently out at Nice in St. John's County, and now the head man at Sandalwood High School. How'd all this come about for you? Um, you know, job came open. Um sat down with my family and, and decided I was going to apply for the job. And uh, there were so many great things about Sandalwood. Uh, talent level uh, year in and year out there is high. Um, past success by uh, with Coach Geist. Uh, he was there a long time and uh, just thought it was a great fit for me. And I uh, met with the administration. Interview went great. Uh, I felt really comfortable with them. And uh, it was, it was uh, great to get the uh, offer. And, uh, and I uh, wholeheartedly accepted and can't wait to get started. You know, you're coming from St. John's County to Duval County, a defensive guy, right? Defensive coordinator. Is that the mindset you want to bring to Sandalwood, the tough, aggressive defense that you had there at Nice? Uh, yes. You know, uh, with my uh, background, uh, I've been a defense coordinator since, I believe, 2003. It's been a long time. But before that, believe it or not, I broke in on the offensive side. I was an OC at a really young age and uh, gave me a different perspective. Uh, I'm a quarterback, believe it or not, by trade. And uh, way back in the days uh, before the spread in early 90s. So, um, yeah, we want to be aggressive on defense. But, but you know, to uh, to uh, make sure we can attract the, the best athletes uh, into our football program and uh, on the field on Friday night, we, we definitely want to spread the ball around and get the ball to the good athletes at, at Sandalwood High School and let them perform on the field. And, um uh, the name of the name of the game is scoring now, and uh, we want to be able to do that also. Brad Kessel is the brand new head coach at Sandalwood. Coach, you've been around the coaching game, the high school game for many, many years. I would imagine most recently at Nice, 
That'll help you with the transition. Nice, a big public school in St. John's County. You're obviously going to a big public school now in Duval County. How will your experience at Nice, just with the student population and the size of your team, help you now as you arrive at Sandalwood? Well, I think that it will go without saying that helps a lot uh, just for the fact of the size of the program at Nice. And at Ponte Vedra before that, um, great football programs with uh, big rosters. So we want to duplicate that at Sandwood. We want to get up to where, um, you know, Ponte Vedra and Nice, we had over 120 people on the roster. And, and you know, you can win with numbers, and we want to duplicate that at Sandwood. So I, I think that can help. But, uh to be in those programs uh, before I came to Sandalwood. So uh, we want to duplicate that you mentioned, going forward. You mentioned St. John's County for a number of years, Ponte Vedra and Nice now coming to Sandalwood. Obviously, the counties are right next to one another. Do you think there's any difference between St. John's County football and Duval mm-hmm. County football? Are there any pros or cons to either one? Um, I don't think so. I think, um, when it comes down to it, football is football, but I, I mean, there are differences I would guess, um, you know, in, in St. John's County, um, the roster size seems to be bigger. Uh, I'm not sure why that is, but, uh, like I said, going forward to Sandalwood, we're going to look to try to duplicate that and get as many players out and be as open. I mean, I want to have an open door policy to any athlete at Sandalwood and get kids out for football and, um, you know, make it enticing. We want to make it fun, but we want to win football games when it comes down to it. But I don't see uh, any difference. Football is football. Uh, kids are kids. They want to have fun. They want to get out there and do their thing on Friday night, and we want to help them do that. A couple of more for Brad Kessel, the brand-new head coach of Sandalwood High School. Coach, you mentioned Adam Geis. He's certainly a buddy. We've had him on the station many, many times over the last 10, 15 years. He did a great job there in two different stints at Sandalwood. Will you rely on him for any, uh, you know, thoughts that he has as you take over the program, the fact that he had, you know, so much success there over the years? Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to reach out to Coach Geist. And um, it's funny, when I moved down here in 2018, um, I took the job at Bishop Kenny as the defense coordinator there for one year. Uh, that was the name I heard a lot, and uh, I've heard, I heard nothing but good things. And I got to talk to Adam a couple of times uh, earlier this year. I had never met him before. But, yeah, he's um, he, he, did a, he did a great job at Sandalwood. And uh, I definitely will reach out to him and, and speak to him because when someone had that much success and has the knowledge that Adam has uh, and Coach has, you want to you wanna use everything you can do uh, going forward. As we begin to wrap up, you look at the success of the big-time public schools in Duval County, Coach, whether it's Mandarin, and we know how close they were to a state title. Uh, Fletcher, obviously, is very good. There's that rivalry there across the ditch between Fletcher and Sandalwood. When you see the success of the other big Duval County public schools, obviously Sandalwood maybe hasn't had that level of success, at least as of late. What are the key things? What do you need to do as you hit the ground running to try to turn around that program there at Sandalwood? Like I said before, I think it starts with getting um, the players out, right? you got to get the athlete into the program. You've got to make sure the athlete excels at what they do, uh, you know, in a good way. Um, just trying to make sure we maximize every athlete. Because, listen, Sandalwood, you know, year in, year out has athletes. Okay, and uh, they played good football in the past there, and we just want to try to get that 
Uh, same thing going forward um, in the program uh, that maybe they haven't had lately. Uh, I think that um, with the past with, with Jeff Sims and some of the other um, players that they've had go through there just recently, there's no reason why we can't do the thing, same thing that Mandarin Fletcher has done you know, relatively lately. Uh, I don't see there's any issues with that. But with my past, uh, I've coached at public schools before. Um, back in Ohio, ha- was was blessed to have a lot of success at those schools and uh, been in some state championship games myself as, as a coordinator. And uh, I think that can't help but, um, you know, trying to explain that to the Sandalwood athlete, uh, that we can get that done at Sandalwood. I've been there, done that. Uh, I don't see why we can't do that going forward. Coach, final question. About 90 days before spring ball, order of business for you. Now that you're the head coach at Sandalwood, what are the first steps you want to take? Assembling a staff, how's that process going to work? Yeah, I'm just sitting down talking to uh, coaches I know, whether they be back from uh, Ohio, uh, places I've coached before, and a lot of the guys I've coached with down here. And, and obviously I'll open that up and, and interview uh, qualified candidates uh, here going forward. And um, you know, getting with the players. I want to get to know the players and student athletes at Sandalwood to make sure they understand that, you know, we're going to do everything we can to win football games at Sandalwood, you know, and that's the number one thing. Players win games. You know, coaches facilitate that, but players win games. And, uh, you know, I got to get the players out on the field on Friday night and let them perform. And I don't think that's going to be a problem. Brad Kessel, the brand-new head coach of Sandalwood High School. Coach, best of luck. Congratulations on the job, and we'll be talking soon, my friend. Appreciate it. Brian, thank you very much. I hope to talk to you again uh, relatively shortly, and uh, you have a great day, brother. And thank you to Brad Kessel, the brand-new head coach of Sandalwood High School, for joining us here tonight on a little high school spotlight for you on Hacker After Dark. My big takeaway of the evening here on Hacker After Dark. Well, there's a lot of talk going on. Doug Peterson, Trent Balky, what exactly is going on? Uh, Trent Balky, we heard Pete Prisco on Jaguars today, earlier today. Did he contemplate retirement? Did he contemplate stepping down? I don't like all of this stuff that's out there because obviously we need to be on the same page. All right. It was the worst collapse in the history of the franchise. Things were bad when the season ended. That's why you lose five out of six. That's why you go from eight and three to ultimately missing the playoffs. But you got to get realigned, man. You got to get back in sync. You got to get back on the same page. Hopefully that process has begun with Ryan Nielsen, the brand new defensive coordinator that was hired yesterday off the Atlanta Falcons staff. But you knew this was coming, right? You knew after that collapse, things like this were coming. You just hope that you can find some common ground. You hope some of these stories, quite frankly, aren't true or are exaggerated a little bit, and you could hope that whatever the Jaguars had in 2022 during that six-game winning streak, they can find again because that six-game winning streak to get into the playoffs at the end of last year certainly seems like a long, long time ago. Well, that'll just about do it. Our late-night show every Tuesday, we appreciate you guys for staying up late with us here on 1010XL and on 92.5 FM. We have a ton of people to thank. Again, thank you to Brad Kessel, the brand-new head coach of Sandalwood High School, for joining us tonight. Thank you to D. Orlando Ledbetter of the Atlanta Journal. 
Constitution. He's covered the Falcons for years for talking about the Jaguars' new defensive coordinator and Ryan Nielsen. Again, thank you to Jacob Rudner, 247sports.com, down in Gainesville for talking Florida Gator football and a little basketball with us. The Gators got a nice win on the hardwood on Saturday at Missouri, and they got another very winnable game coming up tomorrow night against Mississippi State. You heard from Jose Sanchez, all49ers.com, as our championship Sunday preview continues. We will go to all four markets. We will go to Baltimore. We will go to Detroit. We will go to Kansas City, but we kicked it off tonight in San Francisco. So thank you to my buddy Jose Sanchez, all49ers.com. And you also heard from Mr. Brent Beard. You get him every week here on Hacker After Dark. You also see him on First Coast News for talking a little college ball with us as the world of college football never stops spinning. We will be back tomorrow night on a Wednesday, and we will do it all over again beginning at 8 o'clock. Dylan Denmark was your producer tonight. Dylan, great job as always. I'm the hacker Ryan Green. And again, Jacksonville, thank you for staying up late with us on a Tuesday here on Hacker After Dark on 1010XL and on 92.5 FM. So for all of us here on HAD, have an absolutely terrific remainder of your Tuesday night, and we will do it again tomorrow night on a Wednesday beginning at 8 o'clock. Until then, good night, Jacksonville.